on phobialist.com, you can find a collection of names and descriptions of more than 500 fears that a man named Fred Culpertson has collected and organized. He also has a poster-sized version of all of them that you can hang on your wall if you'd like. I don't know why you would want to do that. Uh, but Mr. Culbertson claims all of the phobias mentioned on his site can be found in official reference books or medical papers. And there was a few funny ones on there. Among the unusual fears he listed was pelidophobia, fear of bald people, geniophobia, fear of chins, didn't know that was a thing, allophobia, fear of flutes, and theraphobia, fear of mother-in-laws. Maybe some people are experiencing those fears at the holiday times. Uh, Teronophobia, fear of being tickled by feathers. That seems like a legitimate one to me. We face many fears in this world, some real, some imagined, some serious, some not so serious. So it isn't surprising that the most frequent biblical command is fear not. And it's so cool that surrounding the, uh, the time of, of Jesus' birth, we get that command several times. In fact, last Sabbath, we read about one when the angels appear to the shepherd and say, fear not, we've got news that's going to bring you mega joy. Today, we're going to look at another one of those fear not commands, this time from Luke chapter 1. Go there with me if you've got your Bible in whatever format you have. It's going to, of course, be on the screen as well. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and uh, the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary said. May your word be to me fulfilled. Then the angel left her. There's a lot of powerful stuff packed in those verses we read, but we're just going to take time to zero in on those words from the angel in verse 30. Fear not, Mary, or as the NIV said, do not be afraid. And I'm sure the angel says this to Mary in response to her reaction in verse 25, 29 that says she was greatly troubled. And that phrase in the Greek is not, doesn't mean that she was just mystified. It's a very serious word. She was deeply unsettled, 
deeply upset by this encounter with the angel. I don't know, maybe wouldn't you also be a little unsettled if an angel appeared to greet you? Now, even before this encounter with the angel took place, wouldn't we expect a bride-to-be to already have a number of fears that may be settling in her heart, things that she's worried about, such as the wedding plans coming together? At this point, she's just pledged. She's just in that betrothed period to Joseph. And I wonder if she is wondering and worrying about if everything will come together just right. I know they don't do weddings like back then like we do today, but in some ways it was even bigger. Sometimes the wedding celebrations were a week long. And I wonder if she thought if it will all come together just right and all the details that were still needing to be attended to, if she was worried about them. And because this was an arranged marriage, I wonder if she worried if she was going to be marrying a good man. Will this man take care of me? I wonder, will he learn to love me? Will he be a good father? I wonder if she also worried about how she would be received by him. Will I make a good wife to him? Will I have what it takes to be a mother when the time comes? And don't forget that Mary would have been processing all of those kinds of worries at a very young age. In fact, the culture of the day, sometimes children as young as 12 years old were given away as brides. Now, they don't think that Mary was quite that young, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old, but still awfully young to be processing all that kind of stuff about life and marriage. Most 15-year-olds today, their biggest fear is probably that their parents are going to embarrass them somehow in public, you know? And my girls aren't teenagers yet. The Lord is coming before that happens. <laughs> he is. Um, but even though they're not teenagers yet, I've, I, we still, you know, take a lot of joy. I never knew how fun that would be as a parent to embarrass your kids in public. But imagine Mary just thinking about these kinds of things at such a young age. And if those fears weren't enough, Gabriel's news would have introduced, I've got to believe, a whole new set of fears, certainly deeper and more profound fears. At least that's the way it would have been for me. I, I know it's not in the text, but, but as Gabriel's words began to dawn in her reality, I would wager that at least it's possible that a few other fears would have started to well in her heart. And maybe the first one of those fears would be the fear of being found out. You know what I'm talking about when I, when I talk about the fear of being found out? It's one of the most significant fears people struggle with. That's the fear that I may not be who you think I am, and I'm terrified you're going to discover it. That I may not be up to the task that has been given to me. I'm terrified you'll figure that out. I mean, just put yourself in her position, just a teenager, never given birth before, never raised a child, and now this angel comes along and says, you're going to have a baby, and oh, by the way, it's God. <laughs> I mean, if you're married, what are you thinking? How do I raise God? <laughs> How do I teach God about himself? How do I correct God? And, and what if I do something wrong? Is this little God going to zap me or something? How am I supposed to do this? I'm just a kid. What if God finds out I'm, I'm not up to it? And he's disappointed in me. And I was thinking about an illustration for this fear of being found out, and I couldn't think of a better one than we find in, in the New Testament. 
the story of that woman, you remember, who was having the issue of bleeding. And she just wanted to remain anonymous, right? Because the culture of that day, the, the laws of that day, she could not go to the sanctuary for healing. She couldn't, she couldn't even be in that kind of company with her sort of condition, right? So she didn't want to be found out. She thought, if I could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, then, then I could be healed. And no one will know that I was there. Remember what happened in the story when she does touch the hem of his garment and she is healed and Jesus says, who touched me as he feels the power go out from him? Her greatest fear other than not being healed was being found out. Have you ever struggled with that fear? That if other people only knew some of the things that you knew about yourself then they would think differently about you. Felt like you weren't really up to the task. You weren't enough for it. I think the next fear that could have settled in Mary's heart follows and is related to this fear of being found out, and that's the fear of actually failing. I mean, sometimes we get things laid on our shoulders that are just so huge. feels like we're not up to it. Can you imagine the weight on her shoulders, this critical task? If she failed, she wouldn't just be letting herself down, her family down. It's like the whole weight of the world was on her shoulders, depended on her, doing this well. I wonder how many of us have struggled with this fear of failing, failing in our jobs, failing in our classes, failing in our homes, our relationships. Boy, if you work in ministry family, let me tell you, you struggle with this fear on a weekly basis. If there's a bigger job put on your shoulders that you could ever, ever do. Again, I thought of uh, an illustration for this that would be perfect was from Scripture. In fact, there's many people in Scripture that were given uh, responsibilities, things laid on their shoulders that they were not up to the task for that were really, really difficult things to face and to do. But one particular uh, person came to my mind, and that is Gideon. You remember Gideon? Back in the book of Judges, the Israelites were being harassed by the Midianites. In fact, the Midianites and the Amalekites had, had just been pestering the Israelites so bad that they, they went in and they destroyed all the crops in their lands. You remember that? And the Israelites had to flee into the hills, into the caves. With all their provisions wiped out, the people were so desperate, they cried out to God. And so God goes to this, like, regular, ordinary guy who's a grain thresher, Gideon. He's like, I want you to go do it. And if you remember the story, Gideon was very reluctant at first, but he eventually agrees. And I guess after all, they had a pretty good army of 32,000 soldiers. Remember what happened to that? God did this process of getting those 32,000 soldiers down to just 300. Can you imagine? 300 against a vast army of thousands. What if it's not enough, God? What if I'm not enough? What if I can't get it done and I fail? And the third fear I think that could have welled up in Mary's heart is sometimes the most frightening of them all. And that's the fear of rejection. I mean, what if she did fail? Surely she would be rejected by God, she must have thought. Or, or on the hand, other hand, she could have been rejected by Joseph. I'm pretty sure that every man during that day and age wanted to have children, but most of them wanted them to be their own. What if she doesn't believe this story from the angel? What if he doesn't accept her? 
Man, as evidence grows, won't my family and community reject me too? After all, I'm just in this betrothal period. It's not supposed to happen yet. I think a lot of people have felt the sting of rejection and struggled with fearing it. I don't think we could find anyone in Scripture who would have felt more rejected than this particular woman. Because not only did she have to face rejection, she had to continually face the point of her rejection over and over because she was essentially the property of the person that was rejecting her. I'm not saying that's right, but that was her reality in the culture of her day. I'm talking about Leah. Remember Leah? She was not chosen by Jacob. Her sister Rachel was. Remember how her father had to connive to get her married? And you remember how angry Jacob was when he found out the next morning it wasn't Rachel he married. It wasn't Rachel he was with last night. Can you imagine being in Leah's position and having to deal with that, that kind of situation? How hard that must have been for her. But she had this hope. This hope that if she could just bear some sons, then maybe Jacob would stop rejecting me and he would love me. And so we read these words in Genesis chapter 29 and it just, just cuts you to the heart. Starting in verse 31, she says, when the Lord saw, or it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. So she named him Reuben, which means the Lord sees. But she doesn't get the love she's looking for from Jacob because we read in the very next verse, verse 33, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon, which means the Lord hears. But still, no love from Jacob. Because we read on in verse 34, and it says, again she conceived. I mean, this is years passing by, right? And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi, which means attached but even three sons later Leah gets none of the love it just gets piled more and more on Rachel who was childless can you imagine the kind of rejection and the kind of fear that it will always be this way for Leah I think all of these fears very well could have entered Mary's heart in that moment the fear of being found out, the fear of failing the task you're called to do, the fear of rejection if you fail or even if you succeed from your family. What is a person to do with those kinds of fears? And I don't think they get dispelled just because someone comes along and says, fear not, even if it is an angel. I had a very light breakfast this morning. I was supposed to, for the purpose of this illustration, have no breakfast this morning but I came for the primary and kindergarten Sabbath school and it was so good, I had to eat some. It looks delicious. But I only ate a small amount. So I am still hungry. It's still, I'm still being honest when I tell you. I had a light breakfast this morning, so I am hungry. And I know that when I get home, we are going to have this special Sabbath Christmas meal with all kinds of good stuff. 
So the combination of, of me being hungry right now and the anticipation of knowing what's waiting for us when we get home is making my stomach growl like crazy. And you could come up to me right now and say, Darren, hunger not. Do not be hungry. Then it wouldn't change a thing, right? Unless something powerful came along with those words. Like if you also brought some of the mac and cheese and stuffing and sweet potato and apple pie we're going to have. Can you tell? I can't wait for it. Unless something powerful came along with those words. I don't think that message alone, fear not, was going to dispel Mary's fears unless she got something powerful that came along with it. And in Mary's case, there was just such a thing. Did you catch it when we read through it the first time? I'll read it to you again. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You know, one of the most powerful things also from this story is what she says at the very end in verse 38, where she says, Lord, I'm your servant. May it be so. I'm, I'm on board. Okay. I think I would have run the other way. <laughs> Are you crazy? But before we get to that moment where she has such courage and faith, before she's even told what is going to happen, the angel of the Lord shows up to this young, inexperienced girl from an ordinary family and he says, you are favored by God. Mm. You see, with God, his favor, it doesn't, it doesn't come after our response. It precedes it so that we can respond. It is extended to us even though it's unmerited, unearned, undeserved. That's what grace is, and that is the powerful thing that changes everything. And it didn't just change everything for Mary, but for countless others in Scripture too. In fact, I've given you three biblical examples. Shall we go back and look at the way God showed his favor to them? How about that woman that wanted to remain anonymous? Remember in the story, we'll go there in Luke chapter 8, if you want to already go ahead and get there. Luke chapter 8, verse 47, when, when she realizes that Jesus was looking for her, that she would be found out, she comes before him trembling, the text says. Verse 47, the woman, seeing she could no longer go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Can you imagine how hard that must have been in front of everybody for her to do that? And then Jesus says to her, daughter. I don't think it's any accident that that was the first word out of Jesus' mouth. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Is that not showing her that she has the mark of his favor, calling her daughter? And how about Gideon? How did God remind this simple grain thresher that his favor was upon him? If you go to Judges chapter 6, just after the angel says, the Lord's going to do this powerful work and we've chosen you to do it, Gideon says this in verse 13, uh, pardon me, Lord, I love that. Excuse me, time out. Hold on a second. Pardon me. 
Uh, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Why are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Uh, uh, where are where all, all his wonders, I should say. But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel from Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I love that response from God. Go in the strength you have. Not to say that the battle is up to you. He's saying, no, who you are and what you have is enough because I have chosen you. I am sending you. We're not going to take the time to read the rest of it. I'd encourage you to read it at home. But uh, uh, Gideon has another timeout moment. Right after that, he says, well, pardon me again, Lord, um, but uh, mine is the weakest clan in all of Israel, and I am the weakest among my clan." How can you say that? And God says, I will be with you. And then Gideon's like, well, I'm still not quite sure that your favor is upon me, that I have received that. So I, I want to do this other thing. I'm going to bring this offering. And God's like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll go through that with you. And he brings this offering, and God reveals to him that, yes, I am the one speaking to you. Yes, you do have my favor. And then a fourth time, Gideon's like, well, let me put out this fleece, okay? Let me just make sure one more time, Lord, that I really do have your favor. And each time, God is just patient with him as he's doubting along the way. Yeah, I'll wait. I'll, I'll remind you again that I have chosen you, that you have my favor, that I am with you. And how about Leah? Oh, let's go back to Genesis chapter 29 one more time. She had three sons, and she named all of them as a part to attempt, or to, 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 as an attempt to gain the favor of her husband, and three times it failed. You know, she never really did get the favor of Jacob. Never really did. But then she has this fourth son, and something changes for Leah. Her perspective changes. Verse 35, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, which means praise the Lord. I think after all these years of fearing rejection, trying to gain approval and love from her husband, she finally comes to a point and she says, you know what? I am done. I am rejecting my rejection and I am putting my trust in the one who will never reject me. So she says, I'll praise the Lord. But the story doesn't end there. It turns out God had a special gift for this rejected woman. It turns out he rejected her rejection too. Because remember, it would be through Leah's line, through this Son Judah, that the promised Messiah would come, not from Rachel. It's a wonderful thing to learn that you live in someone's favor. It changes everything, doesn't it? When I was about 10 years old, sorry, I'm, I'm not just uh, tearing up because of the thought of God's grace, but also because my kids got up here and, and played this morning and it was really neat. And I'm talking about a time when I did my first piano recital. I was about 10 years old. I don't know if any people around my age or a little older or younger took piano lessons from Mrs. Jensen. She lived right up the road here. I don't know if anybody, so there's a few heads that are nodding, just up on Myrtlewood. She was amazing. So I took 
piano lessons from Mrs. Jensen, and somehow I had done it for like a couple years, and I got out of having to do a recital. I was not very good at piano. I didn't really practice very well, and um, but anyway, it was two years, and I had, somehow I got out of it. But this particular year, my parents were like, no, you are playing in the recital. And I was learning the piece that I think every student has to learn, and I kind of liked it back in the day, but I think every teacher hates, and that's Beethoven's for Elise. That's what I was playing. Probably a lot of you had to learn that too when you were younger. And I had to play it by memory. Of course, I was a terrible sight reader anyway, and Mrs. Jensen thought my best chances were to play it from memory. So that's what I was trying to do. I could play it kind of okay at home, but it really wasn't ready. And we were going to be performing in the Loma Linda University Church Youth Chapel, the old one, right? It's all changed now. Thousands of people. Okay, just a few dozen people were going to be there. But it felt like thousands of people were there. And I was so nervous. And I sat there in the front row with all the other students and watched as one after another got up and just nailed their pieces made me so nervous, even more, right, to get up there. I finally get up there. I start playing. My fingers are cold and clammy and stiff, and it sounds awful. And this is a piece everybody knows. Probably everyone's played it. They, they know what comes next, and I'm hitting so many wrong notes. And about halfway through, my mind blanks. You ever had one of those, right? You, you forget what comes next. Didn't have the music. And you know when you're that young, in order to figure out what comes next, what do you have to do? You've got to start over. <laughs> so those poor people had to hear me start all the way from the beginning again and go to, and I did finally remember, you know, when I got to that middle section, uh, praise the Lord, to get through to the end. It was one of those moments, you know, where you just couldn't get off the stage fast enough. And I went down, I was so embarrassed. And I thought, man, my parents... They're going to be so embarrassed of me, too. And we had a reception in the next room. Remember that, that youth chapel used to have like a little uh, fellowship hall right off of it, right? And, and so the students all exited into the fellowship hall and were to line up and wait for the parents and everyone else to come in. And I just thought, oh, my parents are going to be so disappointed. Man, when my parents got in there, they, they greeted me with a big smile and a hug like I had just flawlessly played Rachmaninoff's Concerto, concerto number two in C minor or something like that. Turns out I was already in their favor before I even got up there. Turns out I was always going to stay in their favor no matter how I performed. It's a glorious thing to discover that you are in somebody's favor. And we're not just talking about somebody here talking about the king of the universe. Family, I don't know what fears you have this morning, but my gut tells me you probably have a few. So I can't help but ask, what if the angel meant that for you too? What if fear not, you have found favor in God? Is his message to you also? And since we've seen that his favor wasn't just extended to Mary, but to so many others, I think the answer to that question is a resounding yes. And just in case you aren't convinced that God's favor really is extended to you, I want to leave you with my favorite verses in Scripture echoing in your mind as you leave here today. I always find any excuse to read these from up here. 
For in these verses, I think Paul wraps up God's favor towards us and our potential under that favor in a way like no other I know of in Scripture. I hope this convinces you that those words from the angel were meant for you as well. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You are God's masterpiece. And like Mary, you have already found favor in God. So I invite you to go now and live not in fear, but in the favor of your heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace and for extending it to us. May we now respond to it in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.